So this morning, we're going to continue our study. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Uh, in just a few minutes, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, I, uh, I have a couple of uh, made-up creatures I'm going to put on the screen. They're myths, as far as we know, and see if you can recognize them. The first one, <clears throat> excuse me, the first one is... That's the Loch Ness Monster, right? Okay, the second one is... Bigfoot or Sasquatch, right? So the, the technical team contacted me very early this morning, and they said, the pictures you want to use at the beginning of the sermon are very blurry. Can you tell us where you found them, and we'll go get the right picture of a swan and a snowboarder? <laughs> I said, actually, they are part of the, of the sermon. They're part of the myth. So that's not a snowboarder. That's supposedly a picture of Bigfoot. But as we know, Bigfoot is a myth. The Loch Ness Monster is a myth. It's a made-up story uh, for our entertainment, for uh, the conspiracy theorists among us who think it might be true. It gives us some exciting things to talk about. Uh, but it, at the end of the day, uh, it's all just made up. Well, when it comes to the question of faith, there are some myths uh, in and around the Christian theology as well. Let me give you uh, some of those myths, some of those made-up stories, and see whether or not there's a time in your life where perhaps you may have uh, believed one of these myths. Maybe even this morning you say, well, wait a minute, that, that actually sounds a little bit like that could be true. So here's the first one. Here's the first myth. Good people go to church. I go to church, therefore I'm a good person. Okay, there's, there's myth number one. Second myth is this. Hypocrites go to church, I don't go to church. I'm not a hypocrite. So that's kind of the argument from the other side of the coin. You know, the one person say, well, I'm good because I go to church. The other person say, well, I'm good because I'm honest enough to say I don't want to have anything to do with it. Oh, which, which way should it go? Third one, this, if I do enough good stuff, God will let me into heaven, right? God's keeping score. He's got a tally book and he's got a score sheet next to your name. And every time you do something good, he writes it down. And every time he does something bad, he, write, he writes it down. You know, kind of like Santa Claus, or you naughty or nice. And if you have enough good things on the, on the ledger, then you get in, right? So you just got to make sure you do some good things, right? This is a little slant, a little bit different. I'm basically a good person, but I admit I've made a few mistakes. But God will let me into heaven because fundamentally, deep down in my soul, I'm a good person. And then if you're, if you're really desperate, if you go, yeah, gosh, I don't know, I can say basically I'm a great person, but I'm much better than fill in the blank, right? And therefore, God will let me in heaven. I asked somebody that question. I asked several people this week. And I said, fill in this blank. I'm better than, you know, blank, and God will let me into heaven. He said, my mother-in-law. I said, I really don't think I'd share that with a whole lot of people. I would, and it wasn't Nathan. Uh, I would, it really wasn't. I didn't ask him that question this week. Um, I, I would really just kind of keep that under my hat. But these are all make-believe things about faith. But what is it about the Loch Ness Monster that kind of makes us, you know, oh, maybe I'll believe that. It's like it's almost close enough to reality. And yet the Apostle Paul says, the Holy Spirit says through Apostle Paul, you're believing a myth. If you think God is keeping score and he's going to let you in based on you've got a little bit more on one side of the ledger than the other. If you think you're really good because, you, you know, you kind of go to this place called a church on Sunday and you, and you do the right things, you're believing something that actually isn't true. Colossians chapter 1. Well, before we go into that, the, the, the problem with these, uh, these myths, they all have one thing in common that, that, that is um, harmful for us. And that's they're all based on me. They're all based on what I can do. They're all about self-righteousness. They're all about me being able to be good enough to go to God and say, you should let me in 
because I've done these things. So I don't know how many of you have Bitmoji on your phone. Anybody else got made up their Bitmoji? That's the Tom Bitmoji. Uh, and that's the self-righteous Tom, right? And he's sitting on the couch and he's very, he's kind of puffed up. He's very proud of himself. And he says, I'm worth it, right? God, you really, you want me on your side. I'm really worth it. That's what these myths tend to make us think and act. And we would say, well, I would never be that arrogant about it. I'd never be that over the top. Maybe so, but at the end of the day, we struggle with this notion of self-righteousness, of self-salvation, so to speak. What does Paul say about that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23? I think he wants us to give us a little bit of reality. Paul writes the following. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is being proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship you this morning. Thank you for the, the, this place that you have provided for us that uh, is a, uh, a safe haven in this world where we can kind of stop the, the busyness of the week and our lives. Uh, we can come and, and sit at your feet and we can sing your praises. We can offer our prayers to you. We can worship you. Now, Lord, to, to worship you with our minds and our intellect. And Father, we need your word applied to our lives. Father, as we think about the uh, temptation that we have to uh, want to uh, show our goodness by comparing ourselves to others or, or by what we do, uh, looking any place other than your grace and your mercy, Lord, I, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds this morning to the, the reality of that myth. Father, all of us are tempted, whether we, we call ourselves disciples and have been followers of Jesus for a long time or whether... Uh, we're brand new to the faith, or, or maybe we don't even have a faith yet. We're all tempted to want to live in self-righteousness, to, to be able to say we did it ourselves. So Lord, this passage is for every one of us this morning, regardless of, of how we would describe uh, our spiritual condition. So Father, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts, our understanding. Father, what I have to say really isn't very important at all. It's just another person's words. You know my sin. You know my, uh, my uh, moments of discouragement. You know my moments of doubt, my pride, my ego, the things that would get in the way this morning. Uh, so, Father, I confess those to you and ask that you would uh, move me out of the way, that you would teach us, that we would understand your truth applied to our lives by your grace, by your power, and by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if we want to avoid the worst possible outcome, the self-righteous Tom, or you put your own name in, uh, in that blank, how do we go about that? Well, we're going to look at it in kind of two different ways this morning. We call it the, the one-two step of reconciliation. Uh, here's the sermon in a sentence, and so we're going to sum it all up. We're going to look at this two different ways. The first is digging into Jesus, which is what Paul has us doing in chapter one of Colossians, will move us to reject the myth of self-righteousness. That's step one. And then secondly, embrace a life of faith. So as we dig into Jesus, we're going to reject the myth of self-righteousness and embrace 
a life of faith. I have four observations in this text that I hope will help us understand that clearly this morning. The first is this. Paul wants us to make sure we understand our true identity, not what we would like to see, not what we would want to make up about ourselves, but what is the reality of our condition apart from the saving power of Jesus Christ. And Paul points that out very clearly in verse 21. It says, and you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In a few short words, Paul really hits the nail on the head when it comes to the human condition as God sees us. This isn't how your next door neighbor sees you. It isn't how your spouse sees you or how you even see yourself. This is how we look in the eyes of God. And the first thing Paul says is you were alienated. In other words, you were estranged. You were cut off. You were not on good terms with God. There's a gap that exists between what the relationship should be and what the relationship actually is, the reality in which you live. You're not close to God. You're not, you're not buddying up to God. You're not, you're not being friends with God. You're actually alienated. And he says, where does that alienation take us? Where, where does that lead us to? And the second observation is not only are we alienated, but we're hostile in mind. That word hostile is a strong, strong word. I've given you some, um, some uh, adjectives here, or synonyms, antagonistic, unfriendly, being against someone, being unsympathetic. You see somebody, it's a hard spot, and you're like, I don't care. I just don't want to have anything to do with that person. You're actually wishing them ill. You're thinking about things that could be harmful to them. And when you think about thing, those kind of things, it actually puts a smile on your face. Like, boy, they're going to get theirs. And you don't say, that, like, gee, that's too bad. They're going to get theirs. You're like, oh, man, I really am thinking, I hope they get it. There's a hostility in your mind, which leads to what? You're not only hostile in mind, but evil in your deeds. Paul says that your behavior, these evil deeds, line up with your attitude. In other words, you're acting as an enemy of God. He says, if you want to know your true condition, if you want to know the honest reality of how God sees you, he sees you as those who have alienated yourselves from him. You're hostile in your thinking towards him, which leads you to live in that way, which, which results in evil deeds. Now, you look at that and you go, boy, that's not very flattering. <laughs> I don't know how many people look at that verse and go, hey, let me tell you what, this is, this is me. Isn't this really great? You look at that and go, that's a little bit on the insulting side. And I would agree with you. That just doesn't feel very good. If, if Paul's you know, in the business of helping us feel better about ourselves, he's not doing very well. But when I think about my life, when I think about my attitudes and my actions, I would have to say that Paul is spot on. He's dead on the money. And I'll use my, my marriage as an example of this. When, when I think about my wife and I, Cindy, when I get in a disagreement with her, when, when I see something wrong in her life that she hasn't yet seen, okay, and, and I really am praying that she'll see it, and I'm hoping that she'll get her act together and just become, you know, the, the wife that she should be, you know, I begin to alienate myself from her. Because when I begin to have those thoughts, you don't really want to be around that person very much. So you begin to withdraw a little bit. And so I'm like, well, I, when, when she gets it figured out and when she gets in a better place, then we can reconnect, right? And I'm really, you know, feeling bad for it. But, but there's a brokenness in our relationship, right? Where does that lead? Well, I start to get a little bit angry. Why doesn't she understand? 
Why is she doing that? Why is she thinking that way? Why doesn't she know that she's married to a wonderful pastor who knows all and sees all and is all? And if she would just, and doggone, I'm getting pretty upset about this. And I begin to get hostile in my mind, right? And I begin to have thoughts that are not very kind thoughts. And I'm like, she, well, she's got to get her. Come on now. Right? And I get a little bit on the angry side. Well, where does that go? It has to go someplace, right? That's not just going to stay in my heart. That's not just going to stay in my head. At some point, there's going to be somewhat of an explosion. There's going to be somehow that's going to work its way out. And it might be in sharp words that I use. It might be in, in body language where I just say, I'm just not going to be around you. I'm, I'm, I'm too good for you. And an attitude of self-righteous that just is, is evil and awful. And I begin to act the same way that I think. And I know every one of you over the age of four or five in this room have had that exact same experience. I am not the odd person out here. Every one of us, if we're honest, would say, I can see myself in a situation where I'm like, there's a brokenness. There's something that's putting a wedge between us. And now I'm getting angry and, and, and eventually I'm going to act on that anger. When Paul speaks about the reality of our condition, he gives us the true identity of the human heart apart from God. And eventually it's going to come out not only in the way we think, but it's going to come out in the way we behave. Paul says, if you want to know your condition apart from Christ, that's it. But then he goes on to talk about then, if that's our true condition, what can be done about that? And my second observation in this text is that he looks at God's provision for his enemies, for those who are hostile in their minds, for those who are like, I don't want to have anything to do with God. I want to, I want to live my life the way I want to live it. What does God do about that? Well, look at verse 22. He, talking about Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What will God do with these enemies? What would a normal person do when an enemy came after them? They, they would defend themselves. They would try to defeat their enemy. If it's just two people in a marriage, you want to win the argument, right? If it's two nations, you, you, want, to, you want to defeat the other nation. Big or small, you want to come out on the winning side. You want to make sure that, that your enemy gets put in their proper place. What does God do? He does the exact opposite. God begins, Paul says, by reconciling us through Jesus. That reconciliation word is a, it, it, it's somewhat of an accounting word. It, it means that you're going to make up what's missing. So if you've ever balanced your checkbook, you say, I'm missing a couple dollars here. And the bank says I have this much, but I think I have this much. I have to reconcile. That's the technical word we use. I have to make it come out even. I have to balance the books. If it doesn't reconcile, I've got to figure out where it's gone wrong. We're, we're, we're unreconciled to God because of our evil. And yet, Paul says very clearly what Jesus does is that Jesus balances the book. He brings us into the right place with God. I was in line over at Caldi's a couple months ago, and there was, a, I think, probably a high school student in front of me, and she ordered some kind of drink. When I go to the coffee shop, I get coffee. I get just black coffee. I'm kind of weird. Um, but she was getting some kind of Frappuccino, something or other, and then she reached for what she, where she thought her strap, you know, her purse, you know, kind of hanging on her side, and it was gone, and she didn't have it. She had forgotten it, and she began to just get really, really nervous. So she's kind of young, and, and, you know, she's not sure what to do, and her lip starts to quiver. She's like, I don't have my purse. I don't have my money. She starts to panic and I'm standing behind her. And I said, well, what did you order? So I, you know, this, this coffee drink, whatever it was, I said, it's all right. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll pay for it. And, and she's like, 
looking at me like, do I know you? <laughs> and, uh, and she's like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm super pastor. Come to the rescue. Um, <laughs> nothing to fear. <laughs> Drink your coffee in peace. Um, what I was thinking was, I'm a guy in line that's trying to get a cup of coffee, and I, I just I want to get you out of my way as fast as possible. <laughs> Let me just give you the $3 and call it a day. And, and she was just like, she was kind of, oh my, oh my gosh, I, you know, people don't normally do that. People don't normally go out of their way to reconcile things for you when you've messed up. She messed up. She forgot her purse, right? I didn't owe her that. But I was like, I could, no big deal. Jesus doesn't owe you a thing. Jesus, I haven't done any behavior that would make Jesus, that would merit Jesus's love and affection. And Jesus says, let me balance the books for my enemies. Not only does Jesus reconcile us, but Paul says the next thing, you've been recon- he's now reconciled in his body by his death in order to present you holy. In other words, he gives us his perfection. He sets us apart with his identity. We were identified as rebels and enemies and hostile, and now we, we are represented in a different way. We're represented with the perfection of Jesus. That's how God reacts to those who are hostile in mind towards him through Christ Jesus. He makes it a way for the relationship to be what it should be. And he finishes this this section on what, what is God's provision by saying he makes us blameless and above reproach. So the, the example I just gave you a few minutes ago about my, my, my relationship with Cindy, you would say, Tom, you're to blame there. You're, the attitude you bring to that, that's really how you were thinking and acting. That's wrong. You are to blame. And you'd be exactly right. When we, when we rebel, when we're hostile in our minds, when we're alienated, when we do evil deeds, deeds, we are to blame. And we can't erase that blame, but Jesus does. That's part of God's provision for us. And when we are to blame, what's the chief emotional feeling we have? Unless we're literally pathological and we have no emotions, we are what? We are filled with shame. I tell you that example this morning, not because I'm proud that that's, that's been a way that's defined my, my marriage from time to time and the way I've talked with Cindy. That brings me shame to think about that. I don't like to, to necessarily recall that I can be that kind of ugly, awful person. And many of us who struggle with sin and we try to, we try to fix it ourselves, we end up with this giant weight of shame around our neck because we actually know deep in our hearts we are to blame. And God says, let me take all that away. You're no longer to blame. You no longer need to carry that shame. You can actually trust in me. That's God's provision. He does not treat us as we deserve, but he offers us grace. How could he possibly be so generous to his enemies? I was reading recently again about at the end of World War II in 45, how the American forces and the Canadian British forces were scouring uh, the German uh, countryside and cities and, and backwoods, every place to try and find German scientists who were in hiding because they wanted to bring them to the West. They wanted to bring them to America. They wanted to bring them to Great Britain. Why? Because we're such great forgivers. We were just going to say, okay, Nazis, it's okay, everything you've done. We'll forget about it. Come on over. No, it wasn't because we were loving. It wasn't because we were gracious. It was because we were concerned about self-preservation and we didn't want the Soviets getting their hands on them because we knew that they would use them to try and eventually attack or destroy us. There was nothing kind about that. There there were several Nazi scientists who years later ended up in in the NASA program helping us beat the Russians to the moon. We didn't do that because we're really sweet people. We do that because we want to take care of ourselves. God isn't in the business of self-preservation. 
God's in the business of grace, in the business of compassion. God does not need us. God does not need to forgive us as if something would be incomplete if he didn't do that. It's in the character of God to make us his friends. But the question is, how? How is it that I could possibly be reconciled and made holy and made blameless and above reproach? How does that work? And that's the third observation of this text. Not only does Paul talk about our identity and about God's provision for his enemies, but he explains to us the work of Jesus on our behalf. Go back to verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus does three things. The first thing Paul says is in his body of flesh. What's Paul saying there? Well, he's talking about his physical body that hung on the cross, but he's also saying something else that's a little bit deeper. He's talking about the life of perfection that Jesus lived in order to qualify him to go to the cross for you and for me. If I die for your sins, you're still hopelessly lost, right? As great as a pastor as I am. <laughs> I couldn't even say it with a straight face, right? <laughs> if you die for my sins, please don't. <laughs> Save yourself because it ain't going to do me a bit of good. Why? Because we're imperfect. We're flawed. We're flawed by our rebellion. We're flawed by our sinfulness. We can't help each other. We're, we're two kids in a mud puddle. We're trying to clean each other off. It just isn't going to happen. But what Jesus did is he lived the perfect life. He always obeyed his father. He said, I, I do everything that the Father tells me to do. I, the Father and I are one. We're completely inseparable. We're in lockstep with one another. Jesus lived the perfect life for you. And think about all the temptations Jesus faced. I'm not going to go into that this morning. Think about all the opportunities Jesus had to misstep, and he never did once. He always walked in faith with his Father. He did that so that he could do the next thing, by his death. Jesus gave himself as the only perfect sacrifice there ever was or ever will be in order that you could have life and I could have life, in order that we could be blameless and above reproach, in order that we could be forgiven, in order that we could be made holy and reconciled to God. Jesus balances the books. Jesus makes up what's missing in my life by offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross for my behalf. And then what's the, the third thing Paul says is the work of Jesus in order to present us in order to bring us into right relationship with God, the hostility has, that, that our hostility has destroyed. So Jesus, through his death and on the cross and, and giving us his grace and mercy, makes us right with the Father so that we can be presented in heaven, so to speak, as someone who is clean and pure and has the perfection and the glory of Jesus added to our account. That's the work that Jesus did. That's the restorative work that he did on the cross in order for us to have salvation. And he didn't have to do it. He did it out of his compassion. When I was a young man and we, and we moved back to St. Louis, I was in my early 30s and I had taken some seminary classes and I knew I wanted to finish my seminary education. Uh, and I went to work at a church and I was an assistant pastor and I wasn't making a ton of money. And there was no way I was going to be able to, to afford to pay for seminary. And the pastor of that church, I had been there about nine months, the pastor of the church said, hey, I want you to come to our, our meeting with our elders tonight, and I want you to be prepared to talk a little bit about your life and about wanting to go to seminary. So I showed up, and I shared a little bit. In a big room, 40 men seated around these tables. I mean, it was as intimidating. Here I'm about 30, 31, 32 years old, kind of scared out of my mind, talking a little bit about myself. All these guys got on suits and ties, and, uh, and I get done, and the pastor says, sit down. He says, now, we really want young men like Tom in our denomination, the EPC, 
So I want Tom to go to seminary. And by the way, we're going to pay for it. Our church is going to pay for it. I never paid a penny to go to seminary. He didn't have to do that. Nothing that made him, that compelled him to do that. That that church had a a lot of demands on their money. They could have just as easily said, hey, you know, see if you can get a student loan and we'll pay part of it. They could have said, yeah, sorry, we love you. You're a great guy, but you're going to have to do it on your own. That shouldn't be something you expect of us. And, And they would have been in the right to do that. But he did something he didn't have to do because that was his character. And that man has passed away, but he's still very dear to my heart today. Jesus didn't have to save you and me. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. There was nothing compelling him other than love and grace and mercy. There was nothing that we had done that made us lovable. There was nothing that we could do that would make us acceptable in the sight of God. Jesus died for alienated, hostile, evil people like you and like me. That's the work that he did on our behalf. That's the reality. That's the first step of the dance is believing the truth about our identity and believing what God has done for us. But there's a second dance, and that's you got to get up out of these chairs and you got to go back out into the world. I'm sorry you can't stay here the rest of the week. We're not calling out for Jimmy John's. You can't, you know, if I come in here Tuesday morning, you're still sitting there hiding under your chair. I'm going to shoo you out and make you go home, right? Okay, we can't just stay in our little Christian, you know, enclave here and and never face problems in the world. We got to go back into the world, right? where we're tempted to go back to the hostile way of thinking, to the alienation, and to the evil deeds. So how do we live in that way? And that's what Paul shares with us. He doesn't leave us just with good theology, but he says there's there's an act of belief that takes place. Look at verse 23, the reality, uh, or the living and the reality of grace. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, Make sure you underline that. Don't get it confused with your self-righteousness. Don't get it confused with works. It doesn't say if you are a Sunday school teacher. It doesn't say if you help lead vacation Bible school. It doesn't say if you're an usher or greeter, you go to seminary and get a theology degree and you go out and you try to change the world for Jesus. It says if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed so on, and so forth. What is Paul saying? He's saying that continuing in the faith is actively believing in Jesus. When I get it right in my marriage, it's not because I set out to get it right in my marriage. It's not because I'm going to try harder this week and I'm going to do much better. It's because I get closer to Jesus and my faith gets deeper. And the natural difference in being close to Jesus is I think differently about my marriage. If you have a problem with a person at work you're the, the, and, and you're struggling, uh, a boss or an employee or whatever, you, you're not going to get it better by working harder at it. You're going to get better by getting closer to Jesus and by trusting him and by letting his character rub off on you, and by letting his character fill your heart in your mind. There's an act of believing in the grace of Jesus. And that's why Paul says we continue in the faith. And the result it has is it makes us stable and steadfast. I love those words. Those are great words. Our, you, you probably don't know this, but the day before Christmas Eve, our Christmas tree blew over out on the lawn. We thought we had it anchored, but it blew over. We had to get a group of guys out here and set it back up. Paul says that the world's going to try and blow you over. The world's going to try and make you forget this reality. You're going to be tempted not to live by faith. But when you trust Christ, when you move closer to him and you allow his spirit and his word to infiltrate your heart, your mind, and your soul, you're going to be firmly grounded over the long haul. And all of that is because you're what? Centered 
on the hope of the gospel. Not the hope of you hanging on to God, but what is the good news? What is the gospel? The gospel is that God holds on to you. Don't you ever forget that. Don't you ever replace that with something else because it will let you down. It will suck the joy out of your life and you'll be a mean, angry Christian that none of us want to be around. (laughs) Allow the gospel to penetrate your heart and your soul. Allow the grace of Jesus to flood your mind day in and day out, actively trusting in Jesus Christ. And what you'll find is that your thoughts and your words and your deeds begin to shift and people will begin to say things like, you're a little different. You're not quite how you used to be. And at that moment you say, praise God. God's doing something in my life. That's the new reality. That's how Paul, that's how God is changing me from the inside out. It's faith, not in self-righteousness, not that I can change my heart or my mind, but that I can begin to act like a friend of God because God is giving me his grace and his spirit and his word to do just that. I have a friend who I would say two things about this friend. And I've known him since the late 1990s. When I met him, he was the worst husband I'd ever met in my life. Now, I haven't met every husband walking around on the planet, right? I don't know every guy that's ever been married. I, that's limited, okay? But I can honestly say, and, I, and he and I have had this conversation dozens of times, by far the worst husband I've ever seen in my life. You know what he is today? He's one of the best husbands I've ever met in my life. If I needed advice on my marriage and I bumped into him at the grocery store, I, I would not hesitate one second to say, let me ask you a question. I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. What changed? What happened? What was the difference? He came to grips with the reality of his life that he was a guy that was alienated from Christ and hostile and doing evil deeds. But he also, through repentance, began to embrace the reality that God gave him, that God cared for him, that God loved him, that God was going to change him from the inside out. And he accepted the work of Jesus in his life. If he were standing here today, he would say, Tom's wrong. I'm, I'm not that great of a husband because he's humble and because it, that's, that's his spirit now. But that's the opposite of what his spirit used to be. When he was the worst husband in the world, he probably would have said, I'm a pretty good husband. That's what the spirit of God, that's what the gospel does for us. It changes our thoughts. It changes our attitude. And it allows the spirit of God to, to work in us to take the worst husband in the world and make him one of the best. That's the two-step reality that we want to grasp this morning. To see our true identity, to reject self-righteousness, and trust in the reconciliation that Jesus provides for us. And then secondly, living on the foundation of that grace. And we'll talk a whole lot more about that. I will tell you, chapter 3 of Colossians is all about what it means to live on the foundation of grace. What does it look like for me to actively believe in Jesus and my human relationship? So we'll look at that. But for this morning, the bottom line is to learn to live in the reality, not in the myth. So I showed you the self-righteous Tom, right? Well, so I got to show you the the trying to live in the in the reality bitmoji Tom, right? And I wish I could have gotten rid of that halo because I, I but it wouldn't I couldn't figure out how to get it out of the picture. So the halo's incorrect, but the words are right. Pray for me. Right? I need all the help I can get believing the passage I just taught you. If we're going to accept the word of God, we need, we need to pray for each other. We need to talk to each other. We need to share with each other. We need to, we need to do life together because this is a journey. But the reality is 
that Tom does not at all need to live in self-righteousness, but that Tom, that the, that, that, that the disciples of Jesus need to follow him by faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your life-giving words. Uh, if we are honest, we must admit uh, the antagonism that is in our hearts, that we have gone our own way, we've alienated ourselves from you. And the end result has been that, that we have harmed ourselves and harmed others in the process. Father, I thank you that your word isn't you know, something that's pie in the sky that doesn't apply to this life, but it, it just it hits us square in the eyes. Thank you, Lord, that the message doesn't stop there. It's not just about our brokenness, but it's about your healing power through the cross of the Lord Jesus, through the work that he does on our behalf, that he is your provision for your enemies to become your friends. Father, we're tempted to replace that with something else. We're tempted to, to put our own self-righteous efforts in there. And I pray that you would guard us mostly against ourselves and against our own foolish notion that we can do better and try harder and that you would cause us to rest in the good news of the gospel that you hold on to us and that as we rest in that truth, you transform the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, all to your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name.